Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Uh, we began last week looking at sections 1 and 2. We're going to keep going this morning. Psalm 119. We're in the third section this morning of this blessed psalm. So I will read from verse 17 to verse 24. Psalm 119, 17 to 24. The psalmist writes, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I'm a stranger on the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me. For I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Heavenly Father, we come once again. We are humbled and we sit before you. Lord, we have an open Bible. But Lord, now we petition and pray that you would grant us open hearts. We can preach, and we can, we can sermonize, and we can even sit under the preaching of the word. We can listen. But we are inept and unable to open our hearts to receive the word which is implanted and to save those that don't know you and to sanctify those that do. And so in the name of your son, for your glory, for your honor, even for our good and for our joy, we ask you now, use your word in our lives. Glorify our name and sanctify our church. Amen. Um, on first reading of this text, it may seem that it doesn't have much to do with, with some of you. The psalmist's context, his, his position, his, <laughs> what he's going through may seem irrelevant to you this morning. But I want to tell you right now that that's not the case. That this psalm has everything to do with you. That this psalm relates to every single one of us here this morning. And it relates to every single one of us in, in two ways. The first way is that every single one of us has, will, or is suffering. Every single one of us in this room in some way is going to suffer. Some of you are going to... <laughs> are going to have an incurable disease. Some of you are going to have pain and suffering, physical affliction, incurable. Others of you are going to go through great emotional pain. You're going to, you're going to go through marital suffering. Your, your spouse is going to leave you. Your spouse may be unfaithful to you. Some of you will never find a spouse, and you will deal with the suffering in that way. Others of you will experience the, the pain of losing a child. Some of you will experience the pain of not being able to have a child. Some of you will experience the pain of being persecuted. You'll experience the pain of being slandered at work because you're a Christian, because of your beliefs, because of your belief and what the Word of God teaches about all of creation, what the Word of God calls you to do and to be and to think and to say. And because of those things, you will suffer. All of us are going to suffer. 
But there's a second way that this psalm relates to every single one of us this morning. And that is that when you suffer, you will have two recourses. You can turn to the world, or you can turn to the Word. The first recourse to turn to the world means that you can, you can look to the world to find help and relief. And that can, that can be in a multitude of ways. You can turn to entertainment. You can turn to money. You can turn to self-gratification. You can turn to, to sex, drugs, rock and roll, education. You can turn to good things. You can turn to all sorts of things in the world to try to drown out your pain and to drown out your suffering. Or you can turn to the Word. You can turn to the all-sufficient, perfect, accurate, guiding Scriptures. And that's why you're here. I know you're here this morning with open Bible because you have chosen this book as your recourse, not that world. But there is something that many of us have experienced in our attempt to turn to the word in our suffering. You, you opened this book with tear-stained face. You read the words of the psalmist, maybe. You, you studied the text but in your pain and suffering, nothing seemed relevant to you. Nothing brought comfort to you. You were, you were brought to a point where you were almost ready to abandon the Bible because you sensed that as you read it, the Bible had abandoned you. I think this is a common experience. In fact, I think that's what the psalmist is experiencing. I think that's why... He writes what he writes, and I think that's why God has given us this very specific text of Scripture. The title of this sermon is, How to Use God's Word in Trials. And I think that as you go through this text with me, you're going to see that, that, that these eight verses teach us how to approach the Scriptures and how to apply the Scriptures in our trials and in our sufferings. So that's our endeavor this morning. How, when our hearts are so broken and shattered and we sense there's, we've been abandoned, there's no hope, how can we use this book in our sufferings? So when you are suffering and when you are in trials, first of all, number one, you need to remember your relationship to the Word. Remember your relationship to the Word. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 17. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. You see here, the first thing that this man does is he prays to God. He humbles himself before the Lord. Now, I think that this is a very common, this is almost a, a reflex reaction to, to mankind in their suffering. All men cry out to God. When people are suffering, they cry out to God. They cry out to something, to somebody, save me, help me, anybody, if you're out there. Even the atheist will cry out to God when he is in dire straits and on the bottom. 
and more so. I think most people would even be able to say the first aspect of this prayer. Deal bountifully. Deal bountifully with me. Who, who doesn't want to be dealt bountifully with? Who doesn't want their, their cancer to be eradicated? Who doesn't want the, the abandoned spouse to come back? Who doesn't want to be reconciled? Who doesn't want their suffering to go away? Everybody can pray that prayer. But only a certain kind of person can pray, deal bountifully with your servant. That is, I belong to you. I am your servant. You have purchased me. You own me. Your will is my will. And my will must become your will. In fact, the servant even makes what a, the psalmist defines what a servant is for us even more clearly in the, in the reason for his prayer. Why does he want to live? Deal bountifully with your servant. Deal graciously with your servant that I may live and keep your word. That, that single word there, that, is crucial because it points to the purpose of his plea. He pleads with God to help him so that he might continue on in this world as a servant of God. In other words, this is not some guy on trial for tax evasion and he's like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll be a better servant. Right? This isn't the businessman, he's on trial for drunk driving and he ran over someone, he's like, God, if you get me out of the situation, I promise I will go to church every Sunday. That's not what he's saying here. This is a man who's already purchased. He already belongs to God. He already loves God. He already serves God. He understands that his purpose in life is to serve God. In his commentary on this very text, the famous Reformation preacher John Calvin writes this. He says, all men wish God to grant them prolongation of their life. A wish after which the whole world ardently aspires, and yet there is scarcely one among a hundred who reflects upon the purpose for which he ought to live. Man has been created by God for God. Everyone wants to live. Very few want to live for God, but this man does. He understands his purpose in life. And I would say at least this, at least now he does. When he pens this, he now understands his purpose in life. Why? Because he's been woken up with affliction. He's been woken up with suffering. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning of a simple fact, a simple truth, that God uses suffering in our lives to wake us up. God uses suffering in our lives to remind us who we are and who we belong to and who our master is. Because we are prone to live as if we're God and he's the servant. We are prone to forget that we are creation and God is creator. C.S. Lewis said, you know the famous quote, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And I think we can just refine that and say that pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf Christian. Because we live in America. 
we live in a land of pleasure. And I think that you'll agree with me that American Christianity can be a very dangerous brand of Christianity. We do our devotions in the morning, coffee and donuts, we sit in our chair, we read, and we go out and we live our life as if God is our boss and we're just an employee. Instead of, of waking up and coming to God's word on bended knee, even at times with tear-stained face, I'm an unfaithful servant. You've given me this word to show me, to instruct me, to teach me how I ought to live for you. I live so little for you. I live so little for you. Help me. Help me. And so God does. He brings the wayward child. He brings a, a lying employee. He brings a, 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 a slanderous saint. A broken engagement. An adulterous spouse. A false accusation that costs you your job. Persecution. God uses all of these things to remind us that He is God. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And we're what? We're just a servant. bank account is not God. My stomach is not God. Entertainment is not God. Relaxation is not God. But we fall into all these traps, brothers and sisters. You know as well as I do. I do not speak only to you. I speak with confession. I speak with unfolding my own heart, my own life. Czech Republic is just as easy a life as is Orange County. We fall into these traps and and our passion and our zeal and our conviction simmers. And so God turns up the burner with pain. Suffering and persecution are the master's tools to remind us that he did not send the son to suffer and die for the American dream. Listen again to your manifesto. The Apostle Paul writes, our life verse, Romans 14, 7 through 8, for not one of us lives for himself, not one even dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die and everything in between, we live and die for the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been put to death with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't belong to myself. Jesus said in Mark 8, 35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever becomes my servant, his life, his life will be saved. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to remind you, you're not free. The kingdom that you belong to, the citizen of the kingdom that you are in, you are not free. Our master is not a taskmaster, and he does not motivate us with a whip. He motivates us by his infinite, unfailing love. Manifest that while we were rebels, Christ died for us. 
This is what shackles us to him. This is what binds our hearts to his, his love for us. And it is his love for us that causes us to want to live for him, to serve him with heart, soul, mind, and might. But we forget this. We forget what Christ has done and who we belong to. So brothers and sisters, the first thing we need to do in our pain and suffering is we need to remember our relationship to the word. These are God's words to me, how I am to live for him. I am his servant. But there's a second thing that we need to do. Second step is to request insight into the word. Request insight into the word. Look what he says in verses 18 through 20. Continuing his prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Now, verse 18 is maybe one of the most familiar verses to most of us in this psalm. Preachers and theologians, you know, we we quote this verse all the time. The doctrine of illumination arising from this text. That doctrine that, that we need the Holy Spirit as we prayed even before this message. We pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts. We can understand the grammar. We can understand the syntax. We can understand the tenses. But we need the Spirit to open our eyes, to to penetrate into our hearts, that we would receive the Word and have servants to submit to it. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts in such a way. And preachers and and, and students of the Scriptures and teachers are often using this verse and and, and we kind of think in our minds, okay, doctrine of illumination, and we picture, you know, a pastor sitting at his desk, studying the text, and saying, God, I don't understand this verse. Grant to me insight. Grant to me illumination. And, and that's a true application, but that's not the meaning of this text. At least that's not the context of it. The context is the prayer of a man in suffering. The prayer of a man who is being persecuted. And he has God's word. He maybe even has it before him. He reads it. And he has has hidden it in his heart, even as we saw last week in verse 11. He has hidden God's word in his heart. He reads it. He, He has the word in his heart. He meditates upon it. But in his suffering, he doesn't hear God. In his suffering, he doesn't see God. He is surrounded by wolves. He sees the temptations. He sees the dangers. He sees the traps. He sees his enemies, but he doesn't see God. He reads the word. He he reads about God's power in Joseph's life. He reads about God's power in Moses' life. He reads about God's power in in the lives of, of the Israelis. But he doesn't see God's power in his own life. And so he cries out with a word before him, God, open my eyes. You can translate that word even, uncover them. Uncover my eyes, Lord. I am blind. I don't see your grace. I don't see your presence. I don't see your power. My open, my eyes do not see these things. And so this leads us back to the question, what closed them? What closed his eyes? Well, I just said that suffering opens our eyes, but I think there's also a sense where at times even suffering closes our eyes. What happens when a trial comes? When suffering comes? We become inundated. 
we become absolutely fixed on this trial before us, on the pain inside of us, and we can think of nothing else. I know you've been there, or you will be there. That, that even non-physical pain can be crippling to a person. That you can find yourself rolled up on the floor with your, your intestines and your guts just completely twisted and pressed together. And you cannot physically function because of the pain. You cannot eat. You cannot sleep. You cannot shake the thoughts of your trial. We can't see God's goodness. We can't see God's might. We can't see God's power. We can't even see Christ. And brothers and sisters, I know that there are some of you. I know there are some of you that you have endured suffering that, is, that has worn you down. It, is, it has grinded you down and pulverized you. It has left you in shambles and numb to everything else around you. Some of you have experienced grief so, so penetrating that it, is, it has almost driven you mad. And during that time, you could not read. You could not pray. And even as you did read, and even as you tried to pray, it seemed absolutely pointless. That's why this man prays what he prays. He says, God, penetrate my pain. Break through my suffering. I can see nothing else. Open my eyes that I might be able to see what you have for me in this word. You guys remember the story of Elisha? He was a good and godly man, a prophet. Performed many miracles. Prophesied to a wicked people. And in 2 Kings we read about the, the Aramean king's plan to, to attack the king of Israel and to, to conquer them. And yet every time he'd send out his military to, to ambush the Israelites... They found out the Israelites already knew their plan and had scrammed. And so in, in anger, the Aramean king goes to his military and he's like, which one of you is a spy? Which one of you is outing? Which one of you is going over to the, to the Israelites and telling them what we're going to do? And then one of the guys says, it's not one of us. It's Elisha, the prophet. He knows all things. God's shown him what you're going to do. And so we, we, we have no chance. And so the king says, okay, let's go get Elisha. And you remember Elisha is sitting in his house with uh, his servant and uh, they open the door in fact even if I'll just read from the text 2 Kings 6 uh, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there 2 Kings 6 14 he sent horses chariots and, and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city now when the attendant of Elisha had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now you're Elisha's servant. You've opened the door. Let's make this even more. Let's, we go out after church right now. We open the doors. We step out. And we are surrounded by... A thousand U.S. Marines. 
with M16s or M4s, grenade launchers, whatever they carry. Let's just make it more realistic. How are you going to respond? Right? You've got your wife, you've got your two, three little children, you've got your pregnant wife. They're, you are surrounded by a military, and they've got their guns cocked and loaded, and they're ready to blow us to smithereens. And what do you do? Just, just realistic, what are you going to say? Honey, it's okay. We're fine. Right? Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And your wife is just like, what are you, what are you talking about? Right? That's Elisha's servant. What are you talking about? You make no sense. And so what does Elisha do? Verse 17. Elisha prayed. He prayed for illumination. Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. Brothers and sisters, when the servant saw the fiery army of God, and then he looked at the army of the Arameans, what do you, what do you think he was thinking? What changed in that moment? Oh, everything. Everything changed. The doctrine of illumination worked and opened his eyes to be able to see that God was with them. And that the solution was far greater than the problem. You know, we all say we believe that Christ is sovereign and he's all-powerful and he's, he's all-good and he's all-capable. And we can read, we can, we can preach and sound, you know, preach a big God. We can read John Piper, we can read John Calvin, we can read all these things, we can believe these doctrines. But when suffering comes and it sets in, it comes in between us and our theology. If you go outside this afternoon and you take a look at the sun and you know how massive it is, how big it is, how powerful it is, but you put your hand up in front of your face and you can block out, you can block out the sun with your hand. And it's the same with Christ. We, we can block out the sovereign power and glory of Jesus Christ or allow it to be blocked out by the trial. And so God, in his grace, gives us this text that we might crowd to him, Lord, Help me see you. Remove this problem. Put it on the side as Ben prayed this morning. It doesn't, doesn't mean that these things go away, but it means we put them in a proper perspective that we can see God and his power and his sovereignty and say God is bigger than this. Open my eyes, God, to see that. The same idea is in verse 19. I am a stranger in the earth. It's the same prayer. Do not hide your commandments from me. It doesn't mean like, I lost my Bible, help me to find it. Do not hide your commandments from me. I, I have them before me. Open my heart to see them. Open my eyes to understand them. The word alien or stranger, depending on what you have, that's what it means, alien or stranger, right? It's a foreigner. It's just a person who, who doesn't belong. And this man doesn't belong. He doesn't belong to the world. He doesn't belong to this land. He's an alien. He understands that the world has different languages and cultures and habits and even different gods. And this man doesn't know how to live amongst foreigners. He doesn't know how to live and navigate the dangers of being in a wicked world and in a world surrounded by idolatry. And so he needs God to teach him and to instruct him. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we need. We need God to teach us and to instruct us and to open our eyes. 
Verse 20 belongs to it as well. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. He says, I need to know what to do. My soul is crushed with longing to know what to do. I'm waiting for you to open my eyes. And I think that you will agree with me at this point that sometimes the most agonizing, agonizing, difficult part of the trial is just we don't know what to do. Last month, what was going on in Thailand with those, with those boys, remember those soccer players, and the, the coach took them into the caves, and all of a sudden it just started raining, and those kids get trapped in the cave, and I forget they were in there for 10, maybe two weeks. I just put myself, just try to put yourself in that situation for a minute, right? Your, your kid, just, he's, he's at soccer practice, the next thing you know, he's trapped in a cave, and you're supposed to go to bed at night knowing that he's, le- he's sitting on a piece of rock, and the floods are coming up, and he could, the last thing he's going to be doing is screaming as water fills his mouth, and he drowns. You can't go to bed. You can't do anything. And you're you're in agony for 10 days worrying about your child. You have no idea if they're even alive. You have no idea. You find out they're alive. You have no idea if they're going to make it out. A Navy SEAL goes in there, tries to help them. He ends up drowning. And people are like, what are we going to do? And they're looking to everybody for answers. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Christian does too. What am I supposed to do? And so he waits upon God. And this is what we must do as well. We must wait for God. We must long after his instruction, after his wisdom, after his counsel, and pray for wisdom and insight to know what are we to do. So first of all, remember your relationship to the word. Secondly, request insight into the word. And thirdly, resolve to obey the word. Resolve to obey the word. Verses 21 and 22. You rebuke, <clears throat> excuse me, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. I think the psalmist is reminding God of two things. He's praying, and I think he's in prayer reminding God of two things. First of all, he's reminding God what he does to evil men. And then he's reminding God that he himself obeys God's word. He's in prayer, he's reminding God, God, remember, this is what, remember who you are? Remember what you do to the wicked? Remember what you did to the world in Genesis 6? And remember what you did to Pharaoh and his army when they persecuted your people? You remember what you did, God, to the Assyrians and their army of 185,000 men when they mocked you? God, you love righteousness. You hate wickedness. And I'm being persecuted by wicked, lawless, godless men. And they are chasing me and persecuting me and threatening me precisely because I love you. Precisely because I love your law. And so I'm asking you to intervene for your servant. Take away reproach and contempt from me because I observe your testimonies. Now listen. He prays to God and even pleads with God to work in his life on the basis of the fact that he's obedient. Now, how many of you feel freedom to pray that way? God, help me because I obey you. That's not how most of my prayers go. Most of my prayers go, God, help me in spite of my lack of obedience to you. I'm unworthy of your help. Now, this is true. But I don't think he's telling God, 
Might the public and God save me because I'm righteous? He's telling God that despite the persecution, despite the temptation to abandon the word to save himself, he's saying, God, I'm fixed up on the path. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm being faithful to you. And even more so, I think what he's saying is, God, I'm not trying to save myself in my own power. I'm not trying to save myself in my own flesh. I'm waiting for you. Now, I think there's a spiritual parallel to here to physical suffering. What is religion? It is man's attempt to save himself by his good works, by his religiosity. He goes to church, he prays, he gives, he does good things. And he says, God, on the basis of these things, you have to save me. But the gospel is, I'm bad, I'm wicked, I'm sinful. But Jesus Christ died for sinners. And I, I acknowledge my sinfulness. I put myself, I cast myself upon him. And we remember that Jesus Christ on the cross took upon himself two things. He took upon himself our sins and he took upon himself God's wrath. And by faith he puts him, casts himself upon Christ and is saved by the work of Jesus Christ, not his own. And this is what happens again in trials. Because in trials we're tempted to try to fix it by our own strength. We're tempted to try to take matters into our own hands when we're being persecuted and we're suffering. And the psalmist, again here, brothers and sisters, he's showing us what we're supposed to do in our trials, what we're supposed to do in our suffering. We're supposed to wait. We're supposed to trust. We're supposed to obey, even if it is costly. You remember Psalm 105, a precious psalm, and it contains even there a brief reference to Joseph's sufferings and how God was totally sovereign over this situation, not only in Joseph's life, but in, but in using Joseph's suffering to prepare him. Listen to Psalm 105, verses 16 through 22. Psalm 105, 16 through 22 reads, and, and God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word, God's word, came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king, Pharaoh, sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will, that they might teach his elders wisdom. Brothers and sisters, Joseph waited upon the Lord. Was he desperate? Yes. Was he discouraged? I think so. Did, in the, in the, the 5 to 10 to 15 years he was in prison, did he think about and scheme about escaping? Probably. But what did he do in the end? He waited. And he learned from his trials. And God removed his pride, and God removed his immaturity, and his fleshliness, and his self-will, and prepared Joseph for something that he could never have imagined. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want to remind you this morning. God is doing the same for you. He's doing the same for you. Your suffering is not the end. Your pain is not the peak of the plan. God's ultimate plan is not simply to afflict you.
God is preparing you for something far greater. And the pain and the suffering are purifying you and preparing you for that. Now, if God afflicted Joseph and prepared him to be a pharaoh, if God did that for Joseph, how much more will he do for you on the basis of this? That he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for every single one of us, how much more will he not also give you all things? Because being Pharaoh on earth is nothing, is nothing compared to what awaits you. And your suffering and pain in this life is preparing you for it. So I just ask you this morning, do you believe that, even this morning? Brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're in pain this morning, if you're suffering this morning, do you believe that God is sovereignly orchestrating these things in your life to bring about a greater joy, a greater rejoicing than you can ever fathom and ever imagine? That's what it's doing. Recall your relationship to the word. Request insight into the word. Resolve to obey the word. And finally, receive counsel from the word. Receive counsel from the word. Last two verses, verse 23 and 24, he says, Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Now the word princes here can mean commander, official, representative of the king. And what that means is that these are bigwigs. These are, these are important people. These are powerful people. This isn't our little Prince George running around, you know, the, the British school chasing the other children saying, my dad's, you know, the, my dad's the king. No, this, these men are powerful. They have power. They have the means to persecute, to afflict, to hurt this man, and that's what they're doing. And he's afraid. They're plotting to hurt him. They're plotting even to take his life, as we read later on in the psalm, to afflict serious damage. And this is why this is encouraging, because what, what are we tempted to do? Right? When the big guy shows up at my front door, and he's threatening my life, I'm going to call John Crick. And when people are threatening us and doing things to us, we're, we, want to, we want to seek outside means for help. We want to seek outside means for salvation. And yet look where, where the psalmist looks. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Now, I want you to understand this. Every Every powerhouse, every world ruler, he has a set of counselors. Everyone. Trump, Putin, Zeman, my country. We could go through all the rulers and all of them have a council of men. And they go out and they pick all the wisest men. Who do you know that went to Harvard and Princeton and Yale? Who do you know that suffered here and suffered there? Who do you know is, is good at, at campaigning? Who do you know is good at, at economy? Who do you know is good at this? And they find all the best men in the country, and they bring them into themselves, and they say, you will counsel me, you will help me, you will instruct me, and I will make the decisions. And here's what's frightening. These men who are making decisions at this very moment that will, that will affect our entire country, that will affect every single one of us in our future. Every single one of those men, 99% of the decisions that they are making, they are made in the flesh. That is, they are made without any pursuit of God, any dependence upon God, any trust in God. Which means that every single one of those decisions is, is tainted, is fallible, 
is deceptive, is deceitful, is errant, in many ways is wicked. But the psalmist doesn't turn to man. He doesn't turn to the government. He doesn't turn to money. He doesn't turn to persuasion. He doesn't turn to the big man. He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. We panic. And yet he goes to the word and points us to what we ought to go to as well. When major trials come, we panic. But we don't need to because we have the word of God. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this morning, there are, there are literally thousands of people this very moment that are suffering. There are literally thousands of people that are in utter despair. They have no hope. They have no one to turn to. They have no recourse. They have no help. They have no one with any wisdom, no one with any counsel, no one with any ability to help them. And what I want you to understand this morning is that you have 66 inerrant, perfect, wise counselors to instruct you how to respond in your trials, how to respond in your suffering. As Ben exhorted us this morning, we, God does not promise to take all of those things away now, but He will in the future. And our task now as His servants in our suffering is to suffer for His glory. Why? Because Jesus Christ suffered for us. And the Father abandoned the Son on the cross to bring us into Himself. You will never be abandoned. You will never, listen to me this morning, you will never ever be under the infinite wrath of God. You will never drink from the cup. You will never experience God's fiery judgment upon you. Why? Because Christ already endured it. Your sufferings, as horrible, as sad, as demeaning, as difficult as they will be, never, ever will compare to what Christ endured on the cross. For who? For you. For me. He suffered infinite wrath. He drank the quen to quench God's wrath. He drank it upon himself. He, he took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins in his body. And now we suffer in this life momentarily to be purified and prepared for infinite joy and pleasure for all eternity. We have a word of promise. What we need in our pain is God's counsel, and it's here. I know it can be hard to see at times. I know it can be hard to receive sometimes. But brothers and sisters, I plead with you this morning. Receive God's word. And be shepherded and be counseled by this inerrant book. Some of you are familiar with the story of William Tyndale, the great English Bible translator. He lived in a time where it was very, very dangerous to be a genuine follower of Christ and to be devoted to the word. And against the, the king's laws, knowing that it would or could cost him his life, he translated and disseminated the Bible in the English language. And as you know, he did pay the ultimate price. He was arrested. He was tried. He was tied to a post, he was strangled, and he was, he was burnt at the stake. But Tyndale wasn't just a, a Bible translator, he was also a powerful preacher. 
And like himself, he preached to men and women that were in pain, that were being persecuted, that were suffering. And not long before his arrest, he preached these words to a, to a gathered group of faithful men and women. He said, If God promises riches, he first brings poverty. Whom he loves, he disciplines. Whom he exalts, he first casts down. Whom he saves, he first damns. If he promises life, he first brings death. God will not build upon another man's foundation. He will not work until we have abandoned our works. He will not save until we have been brought to see just how desperate we are so that we might see just how strong he is. And that is what God is doing in our trials. That is what the word of God teaches us. Recall your relationship to the word. Request insight into the word. Resolve to obey the word. Receive counsel from the word. And may God teach us to learn to trust and to obey. To navigate through life's difficulties and trials knowing that he is bringing us to a place that is full of glory. That no eye has seen, no ear has heard what is in store for those who wait upon him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we read and by your grace have understood this psalm, we are reminded of your infinite wisdom that no man could have come up with a book that is so careful and so precise and so full of wisdom, so full of insight, so full of comfort. That, that it, there are so many thousands of textbooks. There are so many psychologists, so many psychiatrists, so many people in need, so many people desperate looking for counsel and help. And yet, Lord, all that counsel and help is found in one source. That is found in the word. So I pray that as we've been reminded this morning, we would take heart that those of us greatly suffering would be mindful that these sufferings will come to an end and that they're not purposeless, mindless sufferings, but they are sovereignly ordained and designed by you to prepare us for an infinite pleasure in a kingdom that has no end. Be with my brothers and sisters. Give them grace, Lord, to take these things to heart and to apply them for your glory and for their own good. And I pray these things again in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.